Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with wave-making scientist, Dr. Lucy Jones. Welcome back to all our regular listeners. We're glad you're with us here again today. And to those who are listening for the first time, welcome. This podcast is a project of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society, and is supported by individual sponsors. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular, would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 a month? Because that's how it continues to be there for you week after week. It's simple. Just go to patreon.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And now let's get to it. Social science research reveals that the natural hazard that people are most afraid of is not earthquakes, but in fact, tsunamis. Their impact is limited to the coasts, and the reality is it's just a fraction of the people who are actually directly impacted. In fact, most people didn't realize it was a real risk until the devastating tsunami that originated from the 9.2 Sumatra earthquake on Boxing Day, December 26, 2004. Most of us have seen or read reports of hundreds of thousands of people who died from this one event across the Indian Ocean. Let's start there, Lucy. How was a tsunami generated that was so widespread in terms of its impact? Well, we have to start with how we get a tsunami at all. Tsunamis only happen when you change the shape of the seafloor. I mean, seafloor is just rock covered by water. And if a portion of the floor suddenly moves up, then the water that was in that space also gets moved up. But it's water, so it doesn't stay up. It flows back out from the bulge. But the bigger the bulge, the more you change the shape of the seafloor, the more water goes up and the bigger the tsunami. So it's really all about volume. Can you explain the ways that a seafloor changes? There's basically only two ways to change the shape of the seafloor, and they're both connected to earthquakes. Remember, an earthquake is the slip of one block of rock past another that creates shaking as one of its effects. So you've got two big parts of an earthquake, the movement on the fault and the shaking. And it's the movement on the fault that's the main way we create tsunamis. If the fault is on the seafloor and one block moves up and over the other, that displaces water equal to the volume of the rock that moved. And the volume of the rock that moved, that's the seismic moment, which if you remember from our last episode is how we calculate magnitude. So the bigger the magnitude, the bigger the volume that moves. Now, the second way you can change the shape of the seafloor is underwater landslides. I mean, sometimes shaking from an earthquake will trigger an underwater landslide. Less commonly, underwater volcanoes can have a type of landslide called slope failure. In general, though, the landslides move a lot less water than the big earthquakes. I mean, think about it. A landslide that is 10 miles across would seem huge, but the fault in 2004 was literally a thousand miles long. So one could imagine from that 2004 earthquake, a wall of water a thousand miles long spreading across the Indian Ocean. Everywhere in its path, it's going to be affected. That's right. It's a wall of water a thousand miles long, but also about 50 feet high and 50 miles across. And so you've got this huge volume of water. And that's what matters when you think about a wave that's going to be affecting the coast on the other side of the ocean. As it spreads out, the size of the wave gets smaller. I mean, think about it. Take a rock, throw it in a pond. You get a big splash that happens and a wave that moves out. And the farther away you are, the bigger that ring is, 
same amount of water. So that ring is getting smaller. Only so much water gets moved and it spreads out as the circle spreads out. Let's go back to what magnitude is. Remember that the seismic moment goes up by 32 times for each unit of magnitude. So the volume of water that's moved goes up by a factor of 32. A magnitude nine moves 32 times as much water as a magnitude eight. Now, a magnitude eight can cause a local tsunami that is very devastating, but there's just not enough water in it to continue to be devastating on the other side of the ocean. Now, it's interesting because I've seen people bring up the 1946 Alaskan tsunami that ended up killing people in Hawaii, and it was only recorded as a 7.0 magnitude. Can you explain how this fits in since it doesn't align with what you just said about a magnitude eight being local only? Well, it's what we now call a slow earthquake. Seismic radiation, how much shaking gets produced because of the movement on the fault is usually a pretty constant thing. But if the movement on the fault happens particularly slowly, it won't radiate as much energy. Back in 1946, we didn't know that difference. Now we can measure both things and we can see that by how much the fault moved, that earthquake should have been a magnitude nine. It just didn't radiate as much energy. We now call these slow earthquakes. We also sometimes call them tsunamogenic earthquakes. Let's talk about now a more recent tsunami. In 2011, there was the Tohoku earthquake in Japan, but this mostly affected just Japan uh, with very limited on the west coast of North and South America. The slip in the 2011 earthquake was twice as large as anything we had ever seen before. And it was happening on a fault that was only a few hundred miles long, one third the length of the 2004 fault. In Japan, in the middle of that fault, this huge amount of slip created a huge wall of water, the largest we have ever recorded in modern times, over 100 feet hitting in some places on the coast. But the total amount of water that was moved was actually smaller than Sumatra because the fault was so much shorter. By the time that wall of water traveled across the Pacific, geometric spreading had made it smaller. I think we also need to remember that in the Indian Ocean in 2004, the wall of water from Sumatra ran into other coastlines after traveling a smaller distance than the Japanese tsunami getting over to the United States. But in 2011, the run-ups in the U.S. were not very big. Almost all of the damage was in harbors where strong currents pulled boats off of piers and did other types of damage that way. That reminds me that we worked together on a project for a couple of years that was released in 2013. It was the tsunami scenario for the U.S. West Coast for the USGS where we both were working at the time. It was looking at the most probable devastating tsunami that would impact California and the U.S. West Coast. So we spent some time studying the likely tsunamis and their impacts. What was clear was that different locations in the same general area have different impacts from the same event. Explain how a particular location can be assessed for its impact in planning for what might come. Okay, we need to start with the fact that the closer you are to the fault or the area where the earth moved, the worse it will be. You need a subduction zone to have the worst tsunamis. So the Pacific Northwest has a much greater tsunami risk than Southern California because they have a subduction zone right off the coast. You can also have small faults that produce much smaller tsunamis and only the local area will be impacted. And remember, we have those landslides, that's also really local. But once you have a big wave from subduction, it travels out, generally getting smaller. The maximum amount of water is going to be in the direction perpendicular 
from the fault that produced the earthquake. So to make the really bad tsunami for California, we actually used Alaska because that was aimed at Southern California. But then as it travels, it gets changed. But once you have a big wave from subduction, it travels out generally getting smaller. When it was originally produced, there was a column of water above the fault that moved. And all of that water, however deep that fault was, gets moved up. And subduction zones are in the deepest part of the ocean. So there's a lot of water. When that wave then hits the coast and the column of water starts getting shorter, the amount that the wave moves up gets bigger. And the details depend a lot upon local topography, the bathymetry of the ocean there. And the details of the ocean floor matter a lot. So you get places like Crescent City, California, that seems to always get hit by the tsunamis. That's because of its local bathymetry. So when we looked at the west coast of the conterminous U.S., the northern part, Washington, Oregon, northern California, were hit worse. Southern California because our coastline here faces more southerly than the northern part, that actually gave us some protection, as well as the offshore waves. What we saw instead were a lot of currents that kept going for a long time because the offshore islands confused it. Complicated picture depends on each individual earthquake. So once the earthquake or whatever moves that water on the seafloor is generated, there's two ways that you know a tsunami is headed your way. You either get a warning from a local official source or you feel strong shaking and you're near the coast so you know there's a potential for a tsunami. What do you do in those situations? Go up. Remember that the tsunami is essentially just a sudden rise in sea level. And if you are higher than the run-up of the tsunami, you're safe. If your elevation is 30 feet above sea level, you'd have to have a tsunami bigger than 30 feet to get to you. And that's very, very rare. If you're in a really flat area and you have no way of getting out of there, go up in a building because the building's probably going to be staying in place. And there were a lot of people in Japan that lived because they went up onto the roof of five and six story buildings. And how much time do you have to do this? This one really depends on the source. If you feel strong shaking, your source is very nearby, it might be 15 minutes, it might be less than that. Move absolutely as fast as you can. But if it's coming from a distant source, it's usually hours. When we looked at the Alaska one for Southern California, it was five hours before it got here. You do though need to remember that the first wave is not necessarily the largest. You can almost think of this like sloshing in a bathtub and the waves move back and forth. Multiple waves come in over hours or even over a day. And the first wave is often not the largest. In fact, the first wave could be in the opposite direction and the water pulls away from you as your first sign that it's coming in. Interactions with the tide and with the seafloor topography can also make this really complicated. So if a wave has already come through, still stay away. There will be more and they could be bigger. Taking all this, a tsunami can be devastating to a coast and individuals there. But taking quick action once warned can easily save your life. And part of understanding whether you'll be at risk is understanding the size of the earthquake. If it's less than 8.5 magnitude distantly, the risk is relatively low. And if you feel that strong shaking at the coast, take a few minutes to move to higher ground. And if you see a drawback, you should move a little quicker. Now we could go on for a lot longer on this topic and we probably will in the future, but we'll stop here today. Until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you, Getting Through It. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. 
visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. <laughs>